Welcome, everybody. I'm Matt Valley, and this is the Rock and Roll Research Podcast, where we share the super cool backstories and side gigs of the research and insights pros that you trust. Today's guest is best-selling author and business storytelling coach, Paul Smith. Now, when I met Paul years ago, he was a director within Consumer and Market Knowledge, CMK, within Procter & Gamble, working on the Walmart team back then. And P&G is so often a job for life. And so I remember when Paul came out uh, with a book, which was really interesting, a book about storytelling. Uh, and then he left P&G, which, uh, which isn't the usual course of things, right? When you get to director level. And I was just really intrigued by that. Um, and he started his own uh, consultancy um, sort of around that idea of storytelling. And so I got back in touch with Paul because I really wanted to hear that story. And I think it's, I think it's a great one and I'd love to share it with you today on the podcast. So welcome to the show, Paul. Yeah, Matt, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here and uh, nice to see you again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so tell us about how you found your way into insights uh, at PNG and kind of what, what led up to that, that interest. Yeah, that, that wasn't the plan. So um not that that wouldn't have been a great plan. It just wasn't my plan. I, I sure. studied uh, economics and accounting in undergrad, believe it or not. Um, my first job was a was an auditor for uh, what was Arthur Anderson and Company at the time. And I mm-hmm. moved into consulting there, which is now Accenture, I think. Um, and then I, I went to business school to get an MBA with a concentration in finance. And uh, P&G hired me in finance. So I spent my first seven or eight years as a finance manager at P&G in various different offices and in California and in Seattle and, and Cincinnati, obviously, right. um, before moving into Insights. So it was about my eighth year that I moved into Insights. And, and the reason for that move was, um, I mean, I, I liked all the jobs that I had at P&G up to that point in, in finance. Uh, I was a finance manager at a manufacturing plant. I was a kind of a traditional financial analyst on a brand team. Um, I was a finance manager on a sales team. Um, and and all, I loved all of that, but I, I didn't, I didn't love them. Uh, I liked all that. I didn't mm-hmm. like them enough to do those jobs again. And I didn't like the other jobs that I thought I would see in my future in, in finance at P&G. And so moving in, but I loved P&G. It was, a, it's a, it was, and still is a wonderful company. Right. Um, and I thought, gosh, I'd love to stay here, but I need to find something that I'm more passionate about. And uh, I just, I just wasn't interested enough in in the work that I was doing. And uh, so I literally, it was kind of a process of elimination. I thought about all the other functions or career paths at PNG. Well, there's there's marketing that I'm probably fairly well qualified for with an MBA, but uh, sure. wasn't as interested in that work. Um, there was work in engineering that I would probably find more interesting, but wasn't qualified for, um, uh, sales I might be able to do, but wasn't as interested in that. So I literally just like was, you know, eliminating all these other options and I got, you know, to CMK or insights and I thought, Hmm, um, it's enough. There's enough analytical work there that would scratch the analyst in me, that itch that, you know, I wanted to have some you know, uh, n- numerical analytical rigor to my work. But the thing that it had that finance didn't have was it was much closer to the consumer. Like I, I wanted, I felt like in finance, my job was always evaluating other people's ideas and analyzing them and putting a dollar figure to it. 
Right. I didn't feel like I was part of creating any of those ideas. Like I would be if I was in R&D or marketing or CMK. And so CMK was the, the one area that I thought fit in both ways. It got me close to the consumer and helped me you know, be more a part of coming up with our product and marketing ideas, but yet still had an analytical component that I appreciated and wanted to use as part of my skill set. So it was sure. kind of a process of elimination. And, and I stayed there for 12 years. And right. so I, I found that to be a much uh, a more interesting fit and, and liked it up until the day I left. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So, so tell us about storytelling and, and how that became a passion for you, because I, I assume that that sort of came about while you were in your role at P&G. Yeah, definitely. I am. In fact, uh, I mean, I wrote my first book while I was still at P&G. Um, yeah, so that move was, it was again, it was a, a career move to try and follow my passion. I mean, if, at that point in my career, I was 20 years with the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I'd kind of developed my own little philosophy about how I think most people think about their careers or their jobs. And this was certainly true for me. I figured, you know, most of us love about 10% of our job and that's why you chose that industry or that profession in the first place. Right. Um, most of us hate about 10% of our job, you know, whether it's filling out your expense report or office politics or something, but the big 80% in the middle is work. That's just, you know, it's okay. It's, it's, it's pretty good. You know, I wouldn't do it if you didn't pay me, but you know, it's, it's good work. And right. I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I could just do that 10% that I love, you know, that 10% at the top. What would that be? What, what is that 10% for me? And as I thought about it over the last five or six or seven years before that, it occurred to me that what I really loved the most was the few days a year that I got to either give a speech at the annual company meeting or teach a new hire training class for you know, new CMK hires or teach at general manager training college at P&G. So what I really enjoyed was teaching, teaching and speaking to audiences. Right. And I thought, yeah, well, let's see if, is there a job like that at P&G? And it turns out there's not, there's just not a full-time job out of the 120,000 employees. There's not a single person whose job is to do that full-time. Right. I, I figured out the only people who, and it's, it's, and that's true for most companies. It turns out, you know, I looked around and said, who, who gets to do that full-time? And it turns out to be somebody who's written a best-selling book and then goes around to different companies and gets to teach whatever it is that they've become known for in the content of that book. And so I thought, well, I guess I got to go write a book. (laughs) So it it was very deliberate. Like, you know, I I wrote my first book in order to create this career opportunity for me that didn't exist inside the company. But I was, you know, I was too chicken to just go write it or just to quit my job and just go write it. I did it in the reverse order. I was like, well, let me write it first and see if it works. Right. right? You know, I got a wife and kids at home. You know, I'm a little bit risk averse, you know, like most of us in corporate America. So I, I, I tried it in a different order, but it, it worked, right? So, you know, that, that first book is Lead with a Story. I think it's it's in its 11th or 12th printing now, and it's in seven or eight wow. languages around the world. And so it, 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 it just, it did really well. And that's what created this new career opportunity that I was looking for. So it was a year after I wrote the book before I actually left P&G to go do this for a living. Wow. So, so tell us about that process of mm. cutting the cord with P&G and, and going off on your own. Yeah. So uh, here's something I appreciate about having worked in insights is uh, I, I essentially did my own test market. So that, so I, like I said, I wrote the book first nights and weekends. So like, you know, a a couple hours a day and five hours on the weekend or one hour a day, I would work on it, you know? Um, Anyway, first book came out and, and, and well, I started actually 
by setting my own success criteria. What would be my success criteria for this test market that I'm going to run with this new career path I'd like to have? And I came up with five, you know, as any good CMK, right? I came up with five success criteria, right? And here they were. Um, I wanted it to be work that I was truly passionate about, you know, not just, okay, you know, feel good about, but feel great about. Um, I wanted to do work that I felt like I excelled at, not was just average at. Um, I wanted it as, you know, Pollyanna as this may sound, I wanted to do, to do work that I thought really made a difference in people's lives, right? Um, other people's lives, not just mine. Um, fourth was I wanted to do work. I needed to do work that supported my family, right? I mean, I wasn't, you know, I was too young to retire and all that stuff. So I still needed to make money. I didn't need to make a lot of money, but I needed to make some money. Right. And then my, my fifth criteria was, uh, it would be a move that my wife would be comfortable with. Right. I mean, she's, so she's my life partner. I don't want to go do something, you know, that's going to make her so nervous and uncomfortable that she's just going to be miserable waiting for us to just starve or something, you know? Right. So those are my five criteria. And so I, I wrote the first book, you know, let it get published and then kind of waited to see what would happen, which would answer most of those questions. Right. And so I started getting offers to come do speaking and training engagements. And I very quickly found out that criteria number one was met. I, I really loved this work. Mm-hmm. I didn't just like the work. I loved it. What I also found out was that I loved writing, right? Remember writing the book was just the vehicle to get to the speaking and training gigs. Right. But when you're in this line of work, you spend most of your time researching and writing books and a small amount of your time on stage speaking to audiences, but you make your money in the reverse order. Like I literally make 95% of my income from speaking and training income and only, you know, 5% from book royalties but you spend your time almost in the reverse order, right? right? Yeah. So if, if I hated writing, that would be a bad career decision, right? I would fail right. at that criteria number one. Well, I found out in the process of writing that first book that I actually enjoy writing. I didn't know that I would, but I, I liked it. And that's important because in, in my line of work, there's really two types of people. There's people who love writing and are terrified to death to get on stage in front of people. <laughs> and there are people who love speaking to audiences, but like the idea of writing a book is like <laughs> nails down a chalkboard, right? Right. It turned out I love both of them. And that's what made this, you know, that made that meet criteria number one. Criteria number two got met pretty quickly. Just the feedback that I was getting at the end of my speeches and feedback that I get, you know, from the books, you know, people write you from all over the world and tell you, you know, what a difference your work made in their life, right? And nobody ever stood up and applauded right. at the end of a budget meeting at PNG that I conducted, right? <laughs> so I, I was getting some feedback that I was, I was much better at this than I was at my job at PNG. Um, and that it was making a difference in people's lives. And then, you know, the, the money started coming in. And I, you know, I didn't do this to go make more money than I made at PNG. That, that, um, in fact, m- my plan was to make less because um, mm-hmm. I was really after a, a, a career that I loved and made a difference. Right. The money turned out to be a, a surprising bonus to me. I, I do better now than I did there, but that wasn't necessary. That was not the success criteria. That was better than my success criteria. Right. And then, my fifth criteria, I literally, my wife and I went to a, a financial planner and I laid out, you know, here's all of our investments and savings and here's how much money I made, you know, and, you know, here's, you know, all, all the details and say, go do the numbers and tell me if this is a, a stupid idea or not. And he ran the numbers and he said, no, this is, this is very doable. And he convinced my wife that she should not be worried about it. Right. So that met criteria number five. So, uh, so that's the point that I, I finally quit to go, to go do this. Well, that's, that's great. It's a fascinating story. And usually on this podcast, uh, we talk to people that have, say, a past life, right? They did something in the past, and then they, they uh, found their way into insights. And we talk about 
what lessons they learned from that past life. Now, this is kind of the reverse. So is there yeah. anything you learned from your time in Insights and CMK that you have sort of applied to what you do now? Yeah, definitely. I mean, first of all, just the, the power of storytelling. I definitely got that from, you know, all of the qualitative research that we do in, um, you know, in, in Insights. Right. More specifically than that, like the, the skill set of learning to ask the right questions. I mean, to, to write the books that I've written, my fifth book just came out last year, and all of them are, you know, are really on the art and the science of storytelling. So for, for most of these, what I'm doing is I'm interviewing hundreds of ex CEOs, executives, leaders, salespeople, marketers, engineers from all over the world, trying to learn about what stories that they're telling and using in their professional career that is effective. Right. And so um, I, I'm essentially on a story hunt every time I am writing a new book. And so part of what Insights taught me was how to ask the right questions even more specifically, how to ask questions that elicit stories for an answer and not just elicit short answers. Right, right. right. I mean, you, you know, and, and it's kind of the classical, you know, uh, instead of saying, you know, what's your biggest problem right now? Ask, tell me about the moment that you realized your biggest problem was your biggest problem. Oh, I mean, that elicits, well, now I got to tell you a story about that warehouse fire we had last week, right? Right. But if right. I just say, what's your biggest problem? Oh, warehousing is our biggest problem. Okay, well, that's not very helpful. And that doesn't elicit a story. So questioning, interviewing people to elicit stories from them was the biggest, most useful skill that I learned. Um, because I learned pretty quickly in, in researching and, and, and uh, interviewing people to write the book that you can't just ask people, hey, tell me some of your best stories. Right. It doesn't work because it turns out um, most people don't think of their best stories as stories at all. They, and in fact, I, I, I learned this for sure when, um, you know, the first book, I, you, know, I, I'd, you know, I'd interview these people, I'd capture their stories, I'd, I'd, I'd write up a draft of it, I'd send it to them and say, hey, you know, you know, we talked for an hour, but here's the one story I really think is worthy of kind of featuring in the book. You know, did I get it right? Did I get all the facts right and the flow right and everything? Right. And a lot of people would write me back and say, oh, I, I didn't know that's what you're after. Um, that's not really a story. That's just something that happened to me one time. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that, that's what a story is. It's, it's a narrative about something that happened to you one time. Like, right. and it just, it blew me away because they were like, they just, it never occurred to them that, well, that's a story. It, it turns out what people think of as a quote story is something that they tell a lot. Right. Oh yeah. This is a story I tell my kids all the time. Oh yeah. This is a story I love telling around the office. Well, yeah, that's a story too. But maybe a story is something that you've never told anybody before, but it is a story because it's a narrative about something interesting and impactful that happened to you. And sure. that's what I was after. I wasn't after the funny jokes, the funny stories you tell around the office to get a you know, laugh out of people. I'm after those meaningful life experiences that will be a fabulous story when told to somebody else. And right. so, yeah, they didn't, asking people for stories, it was just a, was a dead end. So, so I learned that from, from insights. And you know, I guess the last thing might've been, uh, you know, eliciting metaphors, the whole, you know, Zaltman, ZMet metaphor elicitation techniques and things like that were very mm -hmm. helpful in getting people to explain to me in better language, what happened in these stories and what it was like and what it meant to them and what it felt like, you know, if I can get them to use good analogies. Um, you know, I, I was very rarely in front of my audience, so I couldn't do like the you know, the magazine picture collage exercise, 
right. you know, that we would often do. And I was on the phone with these people, right, or on a video call. And but right. but uh, so but some of the other elicitation techniques would would help me get those metaphors out of them that really turn average stories into great stories. Oh, that's great. That's great. Is there any other advice, knowing what you know now? Uh, is there any other advice you might give to people who are working in research and insights today? Um, well, I guess most research people are, are fairly good at eliciting those stories, especially, you know, during qualitative research and mm -hmm. then sharing those stories back with the organization. Um, what they maybe are not as good at doing is in presenting the results of their analysis. Right. Uh, we typically just get really hardcore numerical and analytical um, and, and fail to realize that even when you're presenting the results of your concept test or your product test or whatever, there's still an opportunity in there to share real stories uh, mm -hmm. that will illuminate and make those insights real and human to people. Um, so uh, I, I, think we, I think we in general could get better at that. Okay, great, great. Um, so this is a podcast, right? Uh, and I'm sure you've done plenty of podcasts. Uh, so when you are you know, spending your own time on media, uh, whether it be for personal enjoyment or for uh, you know, something business related, uh, what are some of the sites or sources or podcasts that you personally listen to? Mm. Yeah, so uh, none of them are really very professional. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm certainly not reading. Right? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not reading market research books anymore, right? Because I'm, I'm just <laughs> not in that business. Um, and, and the business that I'm in is the business of storytelling. You know, so and, um, not a lot of books you can read on that. That's, that's why I write them, right? Because they have. <laughs> um, but like Sam Harris is one of my favorite uh, podcasters. Mm -hmm. um, I, I actually I love just the, the intellect, intellectually rigorous dialogue and, yep. and, and debates. Um, and so when I'm on social media, instead of posting pictures of my kids or the picture of the dinner I ate last night or whatever, I'm typically posing interesting questions for people to really have a debate about, you know, whether it's about politics or philosophy or the media or whatever. Um, right. And so I, I, I find myself enjoying just having um, uh, a philosophical discussion about something that's important to society, to, to our, you know, our, our culture. Right. Uh, and that's, I think, even more important now that we've been all separated for the last eight months where we can't, you know, I, and I can't hang out and have these conversations at a bar anymore because they're all right. closed, right? Yeah. Uh, so we all got channeled into social media even more than we were before. So I think it's even more important to have those conversations on social media, uh, to, to use social media for something more than just kind of the silly cat videos and you know <laughs> right i mean th those are fine but i want to use social media and, and podcast and things like that to have meaningful conversations about important topics uh because the public square has been eliminated because mm -hmm. we can't hang out at restaurants and bars anymore right right uh makes a lot of sense so so this is the rock and roll research podcast right paul so uh, so I have to ask this. I, I've got to know. Uh, you know, we've we've talked all the stuff, but uh, now we got to get down to brass tacks here. So you're stranded on a desert island. <laughs> you have three records at your disposal uh, of your choice that will keep you company for the rest of your days. What are those three records? <laughs> yeah. 
So you, yeah, you've given your your age away and mine with the term records instead of CDs or MP3s, <laughs> I right. suppose. But uh, and I can I can assume I'll have a record player to play this record. Um, <laughs> Whatever but, you like. Yeah, my perhaps lame answer is that because I'm very I'm, I'm practical is I'd, I'd probably choose three audio books about how to survive in the wilderness. Right? I mean, you know, instead of listening to music, I, you know, because I'm not that much of a survivalist, so I'd probably die pretty quickly. So I'd, I'd want to learn how to, you know, pitch a tent and, uh, you know, build a fire or something. Um, but but if you force me to listen to music, uh, it'd be fairly older uh, classic singer songwriter stuff like Billy Joel or James Taylor, or if, if yeah. you really want to get more rock and rollish, you know, I'd, I'd go back to my 1980s roots and listen to a, a 38 special or a Molly Hatchet album or something <laughs> Very like nice. that. Relive my youth or a ZZ Top or something. <laughs> very good. Very good. Well, I like it. I like it. So I'll, I'll pay you a visit. We can hang out for a little bit. <laughs> very good. Yeah, let's just not on a desert island. A desert island. <laughs> <All right. laughs> I want to be able to get off. <laughs> All right. Well, Paul, this has been uh, just a fascinating conversation. Uh, it's been great to reconnect. Uh, love the insights uh, that you could share with people listening to this podcast and uh, certainly appreciate your time. So thank you so much, Paul, and rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> rock on, Matt. All right. <laughs>